The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Steve, as you know, Zoe knows that we have a podcast. And for those who are listening for the first time, Zoe is my, my soon-to-be six-year-old daughter. So she's aware that, that Steve and I do this podcast. Uh, but she obviously, she's heard in the car from time to time. But, you know, the guests are all great. Uh, but they don't resonate with her. But this week's guest will. And I'm very excited about who we have on this week. We have Emily Calandrelli, who as some of our listeners and viewers are aware, is the host and co-executive producer of the hit Netflix show, Emily's Wonder Lab, which is a show that Zoe discovered uh, not that long ago, probably a month ago. Well, we just started watching it again. It's a great show where Emily works with kids scientists doing all sorts of fun experiments. And so it originally came out in 2020, you know, during the pandemic. So a lot of value, I think, for parents who are at home trying to do homeschooling with their kids. We just discovered it recently. You know, I think at the times we would have been too young for it anyway. Uh, but she's really into science right now and she's really into doing home experiments. So we were so excited to have Emily on to talk about that. But I think we covered so much other ground that it was just a great conversation. What did you uh, what did you make of our chat with Emily today? Well, I mean, I'm a space freak, as you guys know by now. And uh, anytime we could talk about that, uh, you know, uh, that's definitely in her background. I, I mean, her education's incredible. And you could obviously see that the technical is not far below the surface. Uh, whenever you talk to her, and she has a lot of uh, really great technical skills, but we're all richer for her choice to take this uh, more towards the public science, uh, the, the, the public facing science communication piece. So uh, I thought it was great to have her on, and I think uh, is a great ambassador for the kind of science that uh, that matters to kids and uh, to you know the scientists of and engineers of the future. Yeah, I mean, I think just you know we've always you know known how important science communication is, especially like in the ongoing you know battle against climate change. But I think in the last two years with the pandemic and with vaccination, you know, literacy, science communication has become even more important. So again, I think you know the role that she plays on that stage. I think being able to communicate science more broadly to everybody from kids all the way up to the adults is so valuable. But again, I think you and I learned today you know, some practical things that we can take home. You know, tonight when the girls are in the bath, I can explain why their, their fingers get wrinkled, right? Which is, <laughs> is a question that has come up. And it's honestly, I, I don't know. But we get all sorts of different questions now that, uh, that are difficult to answer. So I'm, I appreciate the resources that Emily puts out there. Uh, for parents like myself who want to give the answers, but, you know, want to make sure that they're kind of coming from a place that's informed. Well, and you could, you guys could sell, uh, tell by the, uh, the, the rest of the chat we had, whether we covered a lot of ground. Um, but I think uh, it was just really good to have someone that's so excited about uh, science and, uh, and obviously really likes her job. And I think, you know, there's going to be, you, like, I think there's going to be so many more shows and products out there uh that that, that emmy emily will have created uh that she's uh if not already she'll be a household name soon well she certainly is in our house and in many others so i think with that on that note we'll go right to emily So we're now very pleased to be joined by Emily Calandrelli, who is the host and executive producer of the hit Netflix series, Emily's Wonder Lab. I can attest to this, that my six-year-old daughter, Zoe, loves the show. <laughs> I've seen all the episodes with her several times now. So each episode features Emily and a group of kid scientists as they learn about STEAM through experiments and fun activities. Emily's also an executive producer and Emmy-nominated host of Fox's Exploration Outer Space and was a correspondent on Netflix's Bill Nye Saves the World. Her chapter book series, The Adelaide Adventure, centers around an eight-year-old girl with a knack for science, math, and solving mysteries with technology. 
She also has a new book coming out in September called Stay Curious and Keep Exploring, 50 Amazing, Bubbly, and Creative Science Experiments to Do with the Whole Family. And prior to her work in science communication, Emily attended West Virginia University, where she received a Bachelor's of Science degrees in Mechanical Engineering and Aerospace Engineering, and MIT, where she received two Master's of Science degrees, one in Aeronautics and one in Astronautics, and the other in Technology and Policy. Uh, through her work, she wants to make science relatable, easy to understand, and more exciting today than ever before in history. So we're so excited to have Emily join us on the Unlikely Innovators this week. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Wow, that was a the really good overview of everything I've done. <laughs> that's, it's uh, incredible, incredible bio. And that's one of the things we wanted to ask is obviously, you know, I read your degrees at the, you know, at, at the end of the bio, and obviously you're an accomplished scientist and engineer. Is that is that always what you thought you would get into when you were a kid? Or did you have different career aspirations when you were younger? Or was this always the path you figured you would be on? No, no, man. I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be everything in between. I loved art and I loved math equally. And so I never really was into science. I loved math class, but science was kind of too messy for me. I didn't really see myself in science. And so for me, the way that I got into it was when I was a high school senior, I was a very practical kid. I wanted to make sure that I got a good job, that made good money mm -hmm. that would make my family proud and just like help get my situation to a better situation than my family was in. And so I looked up all the majors that one could major in and I looked up their starting salaries and I found that engineers made good money. And that is how I decided to go into it. I thought that it was going to be boring. It was going to be hard. I was going to hate my life. But I was going to end up with a good job in the end. And it was going to be this like I had this like martyr syndrome there. But when I went into it, I found all of these incredible adventures and all of these wonderful things about it that surprised me. And so I sort of reluctantly joined this area of STEM. And then when I was in there, I was like, wait, no, this is this is awesome. This is really fun. And I'm actually pretty good at this. And so because of that, I've tried to share everything that I've learned um, along my journey to other kids, especially younger kids, especially younger girls, about all the adventures and wonderful things I've found out about it. So hopefully they'll want to pursue the same thing. I think um, we have the occasion to work with a lot of engineers in our day jobs, Mike and I. And one thing you can't really get them to do is to talk in layman's terms about the work they do. And I think it's so important in some of the work we do in public education uh, to sort of wet the whistle, get people interested is, is good science communication. And we're, we're learning that in our region more and more to get people interested in mining, for example, you need to, to really uh, break it down into core principles that are attractive. Um, what do you think is the most important part of being a great science communicator as you are now um, and it was that always the way, like they didn't teach that in engineering school, right? No, there, there should be more classes and maybe there are today from when I graduated, but there really wasn't anything when I was there um, about communicating and about storytelling and about getting your message in a, a way, uh, across in a way that connects with the human experience. Because so many of us are so data-driven and analytical and we think the information on itself by itself is interesting, but that is not usually the case for the general public. I mean, you can talk about a really cool technology all day long, but if you don't find a way to connect it to that person's life, they may not find the incentive to even listen to you in the first place. And so finding that human element 
to the story is really, really crucial. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And again, we uh, in Sudbury, Ontario, we are uh, Laurentian University um, you know, is a, a partner of ours and they have a great science communication program. And, you know, I think that's kind of one of the things where I, I never thought about that, but I, Steve and I both come from humanities backgrounds and now we find ourselves working largely in, in, in STEM now and surrounded by engineers and students that are taking, you know, engineering technology programs. And so I never really thought that I would end up where I am. Again, when I was younger, I had all sorts of different career aspirations. I was kind of talked out of going into history, leaving high school, because they told me you're never gonna be able to find a job with a history degree. You could either be a teacher or, or a librarian, which, you know, as we know, there's all sorts of other things you can do with history degree. But where I see it now is I think the storytelling and the, and the narrative element comes into our, our day jobs quite a bit because we are working with those technical folks and we often have to communicate, uh, you know, the projects we're working on. But one the thing where I was going with this was that I was not good in math when I was younger. And I guess I'm, I've been better over the years after having gone to university and, and getting other degrees. But when I was young, I just remember my mom and I trying to work through math problems and having meltdowns at the kitchen table because I couldn't figure out what we were doing. And it almost kind of became a point where as I got older, you know, people would ask, you know, what's your strong suit? And I, it was always like a point of pride that I don't do math, right? Because I, I came across your TED talk and, and people, you still hear that from time to time where it's like, oh, I don't do math, right? Just like, it would be so paradoxical to say, I don't read or I, I don't, I don't write. Uh, and I think over the years, now that I actually, you know, manage a budget and have to work with numbers, that's certainly not, not the case and would not be a great way to describe uh, my skill set that I don't do math, but it, it makes me think about your point on science literacy and, and understanding how important that role is, like understanding things in our daily lives. And so can you maybe touch on that, that particular, uh, you know, talk you did about, uh, you know, this, I guess, these aversions to people saying that they don't do math when in reality, like you should, and, and you do, because it's such a part of your daily life, just as other elements of, of STEM are. Yeah. And it's so hard because I think especially math um, and science as well, these are the topics that we grow up with that seem uh, kind of like elite in a way, like it's something that is very hard to learn first off, harder to learn if you don't have good teachers, even harder to learn if you don't have parents who are scientists and engineers themselves. And so it's very hard for any child to um, get into it without all of the support system that they need and it's very easy for them to get behind in that but the problem is is that there's so much science and math all around us and these are such important life skills that we need to learn for not only our own well-being like finances for example um, but also to be healthy and thriving to understand the news that is thrown our way and to i mean we're living in a pandemic how much science have we heard about during the pandemic and we've all needed translators during this time. I'm, I've studied science and engineering for eight years and I've needed translators with specific expertise and epidemiology to translate all of the news that's coming our way about COVID and the vaccines and are they safe and should I take them and when should I take them and which one should I take and all of these things that are very intimidating. And so we need people who are good storytellers to be able to translate that information for those of us who didn't study it. Um, and for those of us who didn't study it, it's really important for us to be able to A, be willing to listen to the experts and B, just be willing to listen in general because it's so easy to see things on Facebook and 
um, sort of just go be educated by memes instead of <laughs> by people who have studied this and gotten their PhD in this. Um, and so, yeah, it's incredibly important. The science is all around us and it's only going to be more ubiquitous as the time goes on. Yeah, I, uh, just when Mike was reading your bio, something struck me uh, and I'll ask you now and you can figure out how you might want to answer this, but uh, why aren't you in the astronaut program? Ah, um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess that kind of, if you wanted to even back up a little bit, you could ask like, why I'm not a professional engineer, why I'm not uh, actively an engineer, because when I uh, left MIT, when I graduated, I started immediately doing TV work. Um, and so for me, the reason that my path got, uh, I, I hate to say change because it was never really directly on a, uh, an engineering path. Um, when I was at MIT, I started studying something different. I started, in addition to my aeronautics and astronautics engineering program, I tacked on another master's, which was called um, science and technology policy um, through the technology and policy program at MIT. And so I was studying how science and tech intersects with policy. And I was really fascinated by that and really interested in possibly going to DC and working for the government and working um, on policy measures that would affect how we research science and technology, how we implement science and technology, how we protect the public from science and technology and everything in between. And so I was already on a path that was gonna be a little bit different than a professional engineering degree. Um, and so instead of communicating science and policy or science and technology to policymakers, I'm now communicating science and technology to the general public, to kids, to parents, to families. And it's a very similar skill set because what you're doing at the heart of it is storytelling. You're telling the people why it's important to them and how it works. And all of those things are really relevant. And so um, I would say, that I did not foresee myself going into this TV career, um, but when I got the opportunity to do it, it felt really natural. And it felt like all the skill sets that I had learned over the last decade were relevant. Um, all the science and technology that I learned in the classroom, I could leverage to interview the experts that I was talking to and really get to the interesting stuff. And all of the science and policy communication stuff that I learned, I could apply to my TV shows and take what I learned from the experts and then explain it to people who are watching at home. Um, and so, yeah, so all of that stuff, it, it feels like it was a natural transition. Yeah, and I think uh, that's where I wanted you to go with the answer. I mean, part of me is still mm -hmm. like a huge astronaut nerd and uh, I love that stuff. And the reason why I asked it in that way is because uh, short of saying you're also a Navy pilot, it sounds like one of those bios where it's like multiple <laughs> engineering degrees is sort of what you hear from astronauts, right? Like the astronaut. Right. Was that yeah. ever something that interests you or, at all? Or I mean, when I was growing up, I would always say I'm less interested in being the astronaut that goes to space and more interested in being the person on the ground that is telling the astronaut what they should do throughout their day. Um, that was more exciting to me. That's not to say that I don't want to go to space. I do desperately so want to go to space, but the astronaut program, uh, I would say the people who tend to go into that program are very similar to people who go into the military here in the US. Um, it's very people who 
are very regimented, who are very good at taking orders. And that, for better or for worse, that has not always been my forte. Um, I have always worked for myself. I have always had a thousand different jobs and I love doing all of them. And going into the military just wasn't something that seemed right for me. Um, and so I don't know that that job position fully lines up with who I am as a person, but that's not to say that I don't desperately want to go to space. Fair enough. You, and Emily, you already kind of talked about this, how it was just like a seamless transition, uh, you know, from the work that you were doing, you know, with your, uh, with your science and policy uh, uh, degree, but certainly it's still, I think, a bit of a different uh, animal when you're actually in front of a camera and communicating it, you know, to a TV audience. Uh, and, you know, over the, over the past, you know, year when Steve and I've been doing this podcast, we often talk to people who have gone from you know, the lab to they become CEOs of their companies. And now they're in a boardroom and pitching to investors and things like that. But can you talk maybe about the learning curve that it was going from, you know, into TV? Or was it maybe there's no learning curve, and you just jumped in and it, it was great. But we're just curious about uh, about that transition as well. Oh, that's such a good question. Because it, there was a learning curve. And if you go back to my earlier seasons, season one, two, maybe even three, and look at myself as a TV host, I cringe. <laughs> I look at myself and I'm like, oh, I had a lot to learn. And I think it has a lot to do with confidence and just being sure of yourself on camera so that you can act natural. The advice that everybody gives you is like, oh, pretend the camera's not there. Act natural. And you're like, what is what is natural about this? I am interviewing an elite scientist at NASA in front of a bunch of cameras and lights who is natural in this environment? What does that even mean? They're not acting natural. I, I think I need to put on some sort of presence as well. There is no acting natural. You have to find what your new presence is in front of the camera. And it took me a few years to do that, to gain the confidence. Um, so if you go back to my earlier work, I think you'll notice that there was in fact a learning curve. <laughs> And we uh, haven't been doing this podcast for very long, but if you go back to the, uh, we've been doing mm. it about a year. If you go back to the early work, I'm sure yeah, it's, uh, it's like anything, day, right? Exactly. It takes, yeah. it takes, it's like a 10,000 hour type skill set where yeah. the more you do it, the more you learn, you watch yourself, you're like, mm, why didn't I like that? Let's change that the next time. And then you just get better at it each time you do it. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the, you know, now we're at the point where later into your TV career, uh, Emily's Wonder Lab. Um, and so my daughter just discovered it like probably a month ago, to be honest. And that's kind of what, you know, led oh. me to, to reach out to see if you'd come on the podcast. So, but I know it came out in 2020, which is obviously, you know, pandemic time, which I would imagine for a lot of parents who are staying home with their kids and struggling through homeschooling, working remotely, like a show like this would have been great to help communicate some science and maybe keep them occupied and during those downtime moments. So I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, what it was like, you know, putting that show together, um, you know, some of the highlights. And then also, do you have plans of, of doing, you know, something similar like that again in the future where you're working with kids scientists, uh, you know, on a TV show like that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I it's so funny because we had been pitching a children's show for a number of years and we had got some nibbles and bites from different networks and we had gotten to the pilot stage with a separate network and then they watched the pilot we had high hopes and then they said it was too sciencey for their audience which was really really frustrating because we had already like whittled it down and compromised on how much science we included with the experiments and at that point it just felt like it was pretty explosions with no substance no science no explanations no education and so when we pitched it to netflix 
And we got the call that not only did they want our show, they were excited about the show, but they were totally fine with me filming it eight months, nine months pregnant at the time, which was totally exciting and wild to me um, because they had asked me, they gave, they gave me the choice whether or not I wanted to film it before or after the baby came. And I had never had, this was my first child. And I was like, I don't know what it's like to have a baby. I hear it's pretty hard. Um, let's do this before she comes. And so we prepared all the experiments. I just really spent time in coffee shops, looking online, testing out different experiments at home and just going through the library of science experiments and then trying to figure out how we make them bigger, how we make them more colorful, how we turn it into a game that makes it fun for the kids on the show and the kids watching at home. And so we got all those experiments. We, we, kind of tested them out in studio. And then we got to the studio and filmed everything within six days. Um, so it was really like a, a sprint to the finish line because um, we sort of had a natural deadline, yeah. which was the baby. <laughs> so we had to just like get it done. Yeah, I think um, I want to ask you about a guy. Um, in fact, he's a science guy. Um, ah, I huh. think does uh, a science guy wear a bow tie? <laughs> yeah, um, I think I don't want to like I look older than I am, but I want to assume that we're of, this, of similar vintage uh, mm -hmm. to have to have watched Bill Nye, uh, the science guy, and his sort of landmark show that was one of those sort of first pop culture science communication things that wasn't super dull and boring, and that was yeah. engaging but still got the science right. You had the opportunity to work. Uh, with with Bill Nye on Bill Nye Saves the World. Can you tell us a bit about that? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. So when I got the call that I was going to be um, able to interview for the placement um, and not just interview with anybody, I was interviewing with Bill Nye. Um, I was so nervous. I was so incredibly nervous because like you said, this is somebody that we grew up with. This was an idol that I had in my head, not a real person that would potentially be a colleague. And so I had to kind of shift my mindset into this like Bill Nye, the science guy, <laughs> idol, 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 um, <laughs> to colleague, boss, let's like, let's interview and show off your science skill set. Um, and so I interviewed with him and it was wonderful because he had just come back from doing a speech in West Virginia, which is my home state um, in the United States. And we had talked a lot about how coal mining is just entrenched in the culture in West Virginia and how that affects their thoughts and feelings on climate change. And we had this like really beautiful philosophical discussion about how West Virginians think about climate change and how that's influenced by the coal industry. And we just resonated on this. And I, I felt like it went so well. I left the interview and I was like, we were walking out, he was getting a uh, uber to go to some talk that he was giving and i was like emily don't ask for a selfie don't ask for a selfie you want him to think of you as a colleague not as a fan and i was like don't don't do it and as he was leaving he was like oh we need to get a selfie and he took one on his phone and then he said goodbye got into an uber and i never got to see the selfie again and i was like Oh, I missed my chance of getting a selfie with Bill Nye. But of course, I got to work with him on the show and I got many a selfie since. Um, but it was absolutely wonderful getting the job. Um, that was a dream come true. Bill is everything that you imagined he is. He's extremely nerdy and excited about science to the point where sometimes you have to 
tell him to stop talking about science stories that he has. He's like that um, older uncle maybe in your family that just has a ton of war stories that mm -hmm. just won't stop talking about them. Um, but it's very endearing and you can tell they're very passionate about it. That's exactly what Bill is. So it was wonderful working with him. That show was such a blast. Um, and yeah, hopefully I see that he has a new show coming out. The end is nigh, which sounds really, really cool. So yeah, he's thriving. Bill Nye is thriving. <laughs> yeah. And I guess he, uh, he worked at Boeing, right? I think. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. he was, he was like a practicing engineer, um, at Boeing. Yep. Yeah. Neat. Emily, I don't know if you'll agree with us, but Steve and I always say that the, the original theme song to the Bill Nye show has one of the most underrated guitar solos of all time. Oh, and it doesn't get enough credit as like a shredding as it's, it's a shredder. So what? Okay. I need to go back and you'll have to go to back because I, I don't remember. Oh, it's unreal. Solo. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too embarrassed to say that we definitely play it often enough in our department just to hear the guitar solo because it is it's really good. You don't you don't think of it as a kid, and then as you grow up and you appreciate music more, and you go back, you're like, wow, like that's that's a really good guitar solo. So interesting. Anyway, okay, yeah, no, I need to go. I need to go back. <laughs> yeah, I have I have a new appreciation for um, TV show theme songs because um, the guy who wrote our theme song, Perry Grip, and his wife also they together they like they wrote the theme song to Emily's Wonder Lab. They also wrote the theme song to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, and a bunch of other like children shows, but these people have been in the game for a long time. And it, it takes a special skill set to get one of those like songs that feels kind of like a virus that is downloaded into your brain and you can't stop thinking about after you hear it. And they have that skill set. Well, I was well and say I think it's uh, it's Netflix that might be ruining it. Uh, you know, why would you ever want to skip the opening theme, right? I know. You got, you got to listen to those. Uh, no, those yeah, it's songs. an experience. Yeah, yeah. agreed. But uh, yeah, the other thing, I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer, though, also did have a really good guitar solo. And I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting too far into the guitars and in, 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 uh, TV shows, but uh, we'll kind of put a pin in that for now. And one of the other things we want to talk about going from TV uh, is, is obviously the books that you write. And the one that really intrigued me, you know, as of late is the science experiment book that's coming out in the fall. Um, my daughter's at the age now where you know, she sees what's happening on Emily's Wonder Lab, and she wants to do those experiments. And so when I saw that this book was coming out, I obviously automatically pre-ordered it because I think it's uh, oh, it's, it comes you. out right around her birthday. So she'll love it and she'll want to do all that stuff. And I'm into it. But one of the things I wanted to ask is uh, obviously there's been science experiment books that people have released throughout, you know, forever. Um, what made you want to do it? And, and how is your book different from maybe some offerings we've seen in the past? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, mostly I wanted to do it because Emily's Wonder Lab was such a hit. And since we haven't been picked up yet, we have, I mean, I have all of these ideas for like three more seasons, at least of Emily's Wonder Lab, but because it hasn't been picked up yet, I just, I wanted to give those resources to the people who loved the show um, so that they can continue to do the activities that they've loved doing um, during the pandemic and by watching Emily's Wonder Lab. And so I came up with my 50 favorite experiments. And like you said, I didn't want to just put them in a book like a, a recipe book um, and just have that be it kind of a, just sort of like a, a lecture book of here's the science, here's the steps of what you do and go do them. Um, I wanted it to be a fun, engaging, learning experience kind of similar to how the kids watch Emily's Wonder Lab and in Emily's Wonder Lab one of the cool key things in the show are the kids mm -hmm. there are 10 different kids who are all learning with me and what I loved about the show is that we didn't tell them what science experiment they were going to be doing that day 
And so they were really actually learning the science on the show in front of the cameras. And that was great for two reasons. It was authentic for them. So a lot of their reactions to the science were very authentic because it was their first time seeing it. And two, it made me feel really authentic because I really was teaching these kids who were in front of me the science. And so I, I was very engaging with them and I was listening to the questions they had and we were trying to figure it out together. And so I wanted the book to be the same way. And so instead of here are the steps and here's the science, it's me with a child in the book and the child throughout the book is asking questions um, and it'll be at a different stage of the experiment. They'll say, oh, it bubbled. Why did it bubble? And oh, it turned pink. Why did it turn pink? Oh, and it feels hot. Why does it feel hot? And it feels really hard when I hit it. Why does it feel hard when I hit it? And so it's me going through the science explanations through the lens of a curious kid. And I think that A, that is a better way to learn than just like, memorize this thing that I told you and and B, I think that that helps kids feel comfortable asking questions themselves because they're already seeing a kid in the book ask questions. And so the goal of the book is to help kids think like a scientist, not memorize science. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's also prompts to make a hypothesis to experiment within the experiment. And then beyond that, there's a lot of really fun ways that we connect the science in the experiment to the world around them. So there's a bunch of experiments on osmosis and we start the, the prompt, we start the experiment by saying, why do your finger, fingers get wrinkly in the bathtub? Have you ever wondered why your fingers get wrinkly in the bathtub? And I explain the osmosis of how water, water molecules seep into the cells of your fingers and plump them up to make them look wrinkly and then we go into the osmosis of egg and vinegar and the egg and vinegar experiment and so everything that you're learning it's not self-contained in, in the experiment we connect it to the things in real life so the next time your kid is in the bathtub and they see that their fingers are wrinkly they're going to connect that to the science and understand why that happens so there's a bunch of things in the book that i'm clearly very excited about <laughs> um and I, yes so thank you for pre-ordering and i hope that when it comes out people absolutely love it like they liked emily's wonder lab well, I think it's going to be great resource for the parents too, because uh, you, I'm getting the questions now. We're like, why does this happen? And it's like, I, yes. I don't know. I have to go look that up because I can't give you a good answer. And I mean, the during the pandemic, we got into making volcanoes, but that was really like the extent of the experiments that I, yep. I could remember as a kid, right? So I could use some new material to add to the repertoire. So I think it'll be a hit for sure. Yes, that's exactly right. And these, like the vast majority of them are very, very simple to do with ingredients that you can find around your house, because that was also important too. There's a lot of science experiment books that are like, number one, go get dry ice. And it's like, ooh, that's that's like a difficult, not a lot of people know how to do that. Not a lot of people know how to handle that. I wouldn't even know where to get it safely. from. Yeah, honest. exactly. And so these are like, get baking soda, get vinegar, get food coloring, get salt. And all of these things are things that you can find around your house. And of course, there are some that are like, here, here, order, order this thing off Amazon. Um, the other thing I'm doing to make parents' lives easier is I'm creating like an Amazon list of things that you need for each experiment. So you don't have to be like, where do I get this? What, which one did Emily use to make her experiment work well? I like link to the exact one um, so that you can find it. Because I know as a parent, I know when I see things online and it works so perfectly for them. And I'm like, where did you get all of these things to make it work so well? Um, I'm trying to find all those ways to make lives easier. 
That's great. I should say that uh, I, until this moment, really didn't know why our hands get wrinkly in the bath. So I've <laughs> I, I know. I'm going to tell you, I didn't know before I looked it up for this book. That's like, that's the whole thing about this thing is that it, the whole thing about science is that even people who are in science, like I didn't study the like biology or fingers in my engineering work. So there's so many sure. things about the world that are fascinating that I never learned. And um, it, that's the beauty of doing a book like this for me because I'm learning as well. Let me ask you this. Um, we talked before we started recording uh, how you're from West Virginia, like a mining district, uh, sort of like we are in uh although we're mining hard rock here typically nickel and, and copper mm -hmm. and uh we had chris hadfield on we had the pleasure of having chris hadfield on our podcast um er earlier this year and you know one, one of those guys you know like you you could just ask them anything and uh and we asked him there's been talk of this sort of uh the advent of something called space mining like finding uh, objects that you could draw closer to the earth and extract minerals from like meteors and asteroids or even mining the moon and he was quick to throw cold water on that you know because you know yeah. you typically want to mine where you're using the resource do you have any particular views on that and and uh <laughs> if you i don't want to set up an argument but yeah, <laughs> between no. you and chris hadfield but oh uh, gosh no i i mean and i think it's a fascinating idea and the philosophy behind it is that Anything that we hold, most things that we hold um, of value here on Earth that are limited are in near infinite quantities in outer space. A lot of the rare metals and minerals that we use in electronics, for example, can be found in asteroids. And so the idea is that like, well, uh, I, I'm trying, I'm like blanking on like a specific rare metal that would be valuable, but like, let's say um, like nickel or something like we value nickel at X amount per pound or per uh, kilogram here on earth. And it's, uh, we can find like a billion tons of it on this asteroid. Well, you do the calculation and you're like, well, that's worth this much money. We should go and mine it and bring it back. Well, a couple problems is that one, it's very difficult to catch um, this asteroid that is spinning through space at like thousands and thousands of miles an hour and is also literally spinning. Um, and then once you bring it back, you change the entire equation of how rare it is here on Earth and how valuable it is here on Earth. So you can completely disrupt that market. It's only worth that much money because it is rare. Once you bring it back, and near infinite quantities, then you change how rare it is, you change the value of it, so you disrupt the market entirely. But I, the, the crux of the matter, the thing that people have found, because these asteroid mining companies have popped up and they have, they have tried to go through the work to figure out how to make a business out of this, is that the technical challenge of catching an asteroid and mining an asteroid when it's moving really fast, when it's spinning really fast, when it's in near weightlessness, so you have to find a way to grapple onto it. Um, it's it's just it's so expensive to do that. It's expensive to you buy the fuel to go out there and create the fuel or buy the fuel to bring it back. Um, the one thing that they said could make sense, could make the business model close, is by mining water there and creating sort of gas stations in space. Um, 
or creating some sort of fuel for the rocket to be able to go farther. That might make sense. Um, but so far, nobody's been able to close that business model mm -hmm. to make the cost and technical challenge of actually going out and doing it um, be worth the potential value that you might have. So, uh, so far, it's a, not a real thing. <laughs> Yeah, I think even in, you know, like we're going deeper and deeper in our minds here in Sudbury and like that comes with a significant financial and logistical cost as well. And that's on earth. So like to think that it'd be easier or just as, you know, we could easily do that is, yeah, I think there's a long way to go, but I can't help every time I, we bring up space mining, it makes me think of Armageddon, um, where, oh, they, where, yes. they make, where they make space mining seem pretty easy. Um, and we definitely asked Chris Hatfield about Armageddon. And I think we learned to not get Chris Hatfield started on Armageddon, but I don't want to ask you about Armageddon, <laughs> but as a science communicator, like, is there, a, is there a movie that you hold up as like, this is a great, you know, movie mm. that's entertaining, but does communicate the science well? Like, I mean, I love Armageddon as just uh, as a, you know, mindless movie to throw on. It's obviously not grounded in, you know, accurate science, but nevertheless, is there a movie that you- Such a classic. <laughs> yeah, that, that you think of though, that is good at communicating the science? Yeah, I mean, I think Interstellar is pretty well known to have done a, a very decent job at a lot of the like planetary physics, um, astrophysics concepts. Um, so I think that one is generally good. But I, I am such a fan of like the Armageddon's and the Independence Days and just like those terrible space movies. Like those are my bread and butter. Like I love those. I don't, for me, I don't need like a highly accurate movie the martian is another good one and i and yeah. um andy weir's books are really good i love his stuff um but in general it's funny because because i'm the space gal on social media and in my background i studied space for so long and in my day-to-day -day life i talk about space and do space so much that in my free time i don't normally gravitate to like the space movies or the space tv shows i am like a uh give me the like love is blind or the bachelorette any day over a space movie. Cause I just like, I need to take a break from it all. But yes, I, I think interstellar does a good job. Technically the Martian is another one that does a good job. Technically. That's great. Yeah. Do you ever watch selling sunset? <laughs> for, what, for whatever that is next on the list because so many people that oh, love good. like the bachelorette <laughs> and all that love selling sunset. And I'm just like, I live in Orange County, and so I feel like it would hit a little too close mm. to home about like how expensive the housing market is and right. how people like that are like kind of arbitrarily increasing prices of houses. So I might be a little bit angry at them, but um, I, it's it's next on the list. <laughs> yeah, I think I never I hadn't considered that. Right, the whole the good part of re like reality trash TV is that it sort of suspends reality for you if you're if you're yeah. amongst that reality. Maybe it's a bit too close. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, I, I could attest that Selling Sunset is great. Um, but, but anyway, <laughs> same. we didn't think same. we'd get to that point in the conversation. But yeah, it's 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 a great show. But uh, but Emily, you've been so generous with your time. Um, before we let you go, because we could talk to you all day about science and there's tons of other questions we would have. But uh, we did want to kind of bring this up with you as well, because I think it is topical and I think it's an important issue. Um, you know, you recently or not that long ago had an upsetting experience at the airport with TSA when it came to its regulations uh, with breastfeeding mothers. And I know now that, you know, having seen, uh, I think it was a TikTok you put out that you're now working, you know, to help change the way that TSA treats parents of young kids. Can you maybe talk about that and, and what you're hoping to do uh, to maybe, I think, change those regulations so you don't have the experience that you had with, with other uh, mothers and, and parents of young kids? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So, um, yeah, so I'm a, 
I have a three month old at home. And when I travel for work, I am still nursing him, breastfeeding him. And so when I leave, I need to pump to be able to bring the milk back to him. And like the context that makes it even more stressful is that we live in a formula shortage right now. And so like every ounce counts. And so when you travel through TSA, you have to bring so much equipment. You have to bring your pump, you have to bring ice packs to keep whatever milk you do pump while you're traveling cold, um, and then bottles and everything to, to, um, to store it. And so when I went through, they confiscated my ice packs because they weren't perfectly frozen. And at the time, I didn't know the rules. I thought that I had done something completely wrong and they made me feel like I had done something completely wrong. And I just, I, I felt really, really terrible about it. They were, they even told me like, don't even try to, don't come back here and try to sneak it through a second time. Cause we'll just take it again. And they treated me like really badly. Like I was a, like a, someone who was trying to do something bad. Um, and so I posted about my experience and it went viral because so many other parents and breastfeeding parents and parents of young kids who have to bring formula and milk and, and breast milk through have had similar experiences with TSA. And the problem is, is that TSA's own policies state that you are allowed to bring all of this stuff through. So part of the problem is that TSA agents aren't properly trained on their own policies that have already been set in place. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that some of those policies need updated. And so I've been working with my own congressional representative here in Orange County, Katie Porter, Representative Katie Porter, and then also Representative Eric Swalwell, who's another California representative. He has three young children all in diapers and his wife has gone through the same thing when she travels. And it's been something that he's been wanting to um, help fix for a while now. And he said that this was like the impetus to start that work. And so I met with Representative Swalwell recently. I've been meeting with the staff in Representative Porter's office. And it's been really wonderful to see the reaction from these representatives who do want to do something about it. So there are different bills in the works to help change the legislation, to help change the policies around um, how TSA will treat uh, mothers and breastfeeding parents and all of that. So yeah, I'm really hopeful uh, those bills will um, come out somewhat soon. And once they do, I'm going to help try to rally my supporters and, and people who follow me to help support those bills, because that's the next important step is just to get those bills passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I again, I hope they do. Because again, I think it's already stressful enough traveling away from home with yes. young kids to then have to have, you know, that on top of it, you just want to make sure that, uh, yeah, so again, Hopefully, the, hopefully those bills pass, and I'm sure you'll have yeah. all the support support you need behind you on that. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, we saw some of uh, Eric Swalwell in the. Uh, I watch CNN pretty religiously, and like okay. all all American politics, so I think you have a, a good uh, visible uh, congressman. Uh, oh my gosh, he's so side. wonderful! I I yeah. um he did his very first TikTok with me, <laughs> so we are expanding his online presence to different <laughs> spheres of influence. Free social media consulting from, from that's you, right. Emily. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Uh, th we, we wanted to thank you again uh, for joining us. This is it's always the good ones where uh, where you know you, you sort of lose track of time and and you just uh, talk about anything from selling sunset to uh, <laughs> Armageddon to, yeah. to yeah. guitar solo engineering and space stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks uh, so much for joining us and. Uh, uh, we really look forward to seeing all the really cool and innovative stuff that you uh, have coming down the pipe. Yeah, well, you guys were great. Thanks so much for having me.
Yeah, our pleasure. Thanks again, Emily. Appreciate it. Take care. We're not singing uh, Country Roads uh, by John Denver. Although I think uh, I think Emily would have approved. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, we got to mix it up. I can't start every pod. I can't, we can't end every pod on a song. Although we always talk about music, it seems. You know what we should have done? No, we would have got sued. We should have had the guitar riff from Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, or the, the solo at the end. But uh, we definitely was- would have got sued. Yeah, well, I mean, I was going to say that in order to avoid that, like we could have like uh, mouthed the guitar solo, but I think in the interest of wanting to have guests like Emily come back, we're not going to mouth the guitar solo from Bill Nye, the science guy. I would just encourage you all to go look it up on YouTube. It's there because Steve and I, honestly, I would say we throw it on in the office probably once a month. Yeah, do yourself a favor and check that out. (laughs) Yeah, and also I think check out the Buffy the Vampire Slayer theme song because I'm pretty sure that also has a killer guitar solo as well. I, I want to say that uh, Nerf Herder was the band that did that. I know Is that like she, a Star Wars cover band of some kind. It's it's definitely no. I mean they they do their own original music, but they're obviously Star Wars nuts with the with a with a Nerf band Herder. name like that. Um, but yeah, no, it was I, again. Didn't think we'd cover that. Didn't think we'd cover Selling Sunset. I think yeah, you touched on this in the intro, but again, I think she's just so passionate about the work that she does that it just is infectious, right? That you want to stick around and talk to her about all sorts of things. I love the fact that, you know, even though she does have, uh, you know, degrees in aerospace engineering and aeronautics and astronautics that she still, you know, can, can turn that part of her brain off and enjoy Armageddon or Deep Impact, which again are movies that are completely off the wall, but, but are- But the same just, movie, oddly. <laughs> yeah. Remember yeah. that when they used to make two movies that basically about the same thing? I think of like Dante's Inferno and Volcano. In yeah, like yeah. in the same summer, right? Like we need more Dante's competing yeah, Dante's Peak. We need more yeah, yeah. competing blockbusters that are basically the same storyline, but slightly different. There's always one with a bit bigger budget for uh, talent. Yeah. Right. So, you know, Bruce Willis for Armageddon, but then who was, was it Tobey Maguire who played that like young scientist or something? Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. Deep Impact. Yeah. yeah. Morgan Freeman was the president of Deep Impact. Yeah. Though. But how much screen time did he have? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it was more of Elijah Wood's movie. Yeah, I but... think of that as an Elijah Wood movie more than a <laughs> Morgan Freeman movie. And, and who got top billing? The Asteroid. <laughs> yeah, well, and... Um, uh, uh, that was a Norm MacDonald delivery, by the way. The yeah, Asteroid. I, yeah, I, I think I think we all picked up on that, Steve. That's yeah. um... We're going off the rails. We should get out of here. Well, I think we should we should get out of here and we are going to get out of here for a while. So this is going to be the last episode of the Unlike the Innovators, probably for uh, much of the summer. Steve and I are going to take a break in July. Um, what we would say, though, is uh, we encourage you that if you're listening to this episode for the first time, you know, because Emily was on, that's great. But go back and listen to some of our other episodes. We've, you know, been had the privilege of doing this for over a year now. In that time, we've talked to almost 50 different people from backgrounds from from mining to science communication to med tech to media to gaming media all sorts of things so again i would i would go back through our catalog we will be recording with guests throughout the summer but we probably won't release anything again until some point in august obviously when things ramp up again in september we'll be back with a weekly episode so i don't want to say that we're gone for the entire summer but i would just brace yourselves i know that you know, it's going to be tough to go week to week with all the unlikely innovators, but <laughs> we feel as though uh, you're probably not listening to the podcast on your dock or while you're camping or and maybe you are. And if you are, we appreciate that. But we feel as though summertime is a good time to kind of recharge, unplug, 
Uh, so we will be back. We're not going anywhere, but we're just, uh, what's the, what's the line I'm, I'm trying to think of Seaver. You say it's not, uh, Oh, it's not goodbye. It's so long. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's better when you remember the line though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's why you have a co-host, right? So yeah, if I no, forget you jump in, right. we're good to yep. go. So, so anyway, thanks for listening again. Um, we appreciate it. Have a great summer and we'll chat again soon. Season two coming in August. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.